there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. It's good to be back in studio here on the Robert Scott Bell Show, Advanced Medicine Monday, just coming off of that uh, trip. We had some, some nice interviews that I was able to ga- gather from Orlando at the, the Soho Expo, but I'm always thrilled when I get to do some more healing and, and ramping up the behind-the-scenes look at medicine and other things with Dr. Rashid Batar. He's back. Dr. Batar, so, gl- so good to have you back on. As always, Robert, it's good to be here. Well, your wife is on my mind because, you know, the last couple of weeks I've been thinking about what she went through with the dogfight. I know people are interested and anxious to say, oh, how's the recovery? We had good signs last week because you had uh, found a a system, a method that could stimulate or work with stem cells as well, which was very exciting uh, to see. Now, two weeks out, what kind of progress, what kind of regrowth do we have on her finger? Well, comparing it to the original pictures that we took the injury is now we're uh, let's see eight sixteen days post injury, and comparing it to those pictures, it appears that we're somewhere between forty and fifty percent of the loss of her finger is back is already grown back, which is quite remarkable. Now she's already in good health, and mm-hmm. obviously she's a non-smoker. She's you know she works out. She's on trans D. Yes. Oh, yeah, the trans-D-tropin. we got to remind everybody about that. We've talked about it a little bit in the past, but, I mean, that also works with the endocrine system to normalize or optimize it, does it not? Absolutely. It um, helps with uh, growth regeneration. We've had a lot of people that uh, have used trans-D two weeks before their elective surgeries or uh, surgeries that they were scheduled for, and their recovery times are normally reduced by about 60%. So if it takes 10 days to heal after surgery, they're usually within four days, they're mm-hmm. uh, able to accomplish the same level of healing that they, normal people would within 10 days. So we've had that, everything from rhinoplasties and abdominoplasties and th- those types of elective procedures, as well as people that are going in for uh, major things. I've had patients of mine that are undergoing a resection due to mass effect from cancer in their small bowel, in their large bowel, or, you know, those type of surgeries. So major, major operations. And I always get these patients uh, prepped before they go for their surgery. And Mm -hmm. part of that prep is there's two weeks of uh, treatments that we do. These are my my patients now that have cancer. Uh So they're going through certain treatments. And people that don't have cancer that just get prepped, we just prep them with Trans-D and a good nutritional protocol. But Trans-D is the mainstay. And... um, Obviously, the patients with cancer, they're, they're going through a pretty vigorous two-week IV therapy program, which is geared towards the oncogenic process or to reduce the oncogenic process and then the trans more to help them recover when they get done with the surgery. And invariably, those patients, they decrease their healing time by more than half. You know, as I said, 60% reduction in the uh, rate of healing. And... Um, or 60% reduced time it takes, I should say, yes. to achieve the same level of uh, healing. And this has been verified and observed by numerous other physicians throughout the world. Uh, Paracon was one big one that 
uh, first came out and said this back in 2002, 2003 timeframe. And mm-hmm. you know, many, many doctors since then have essentially reproduced the same results and observed the same types of findings. But in my wife's case, obviously the, the growth of that appendage, I believe the stem cell derivatives, and they're not really stem cells, they're more like a cell matrix that comes from a porcine social, as I mentioned before, yeah. that are providing the raw material that's necessary to stimulate the adult stem cells that are inherent within us, the endogenous stem cells, if you will. Yes. And uh, so it's basically a combination of being in good health, uh, being in a relatively low level of toxicity compared to the average person, uh, having this product that's locally applied and then having Mm -hmm. the transity, which is helping to, as I like to say, be just a general contractor and helps to delineate and determine where the body needs more effort and basically uh, is telling the subcontractors where they need to work, if you will. (laughs) I like like that. It's an easy description of understanding how this is interacting in this way. And, you know, what's really fascinating here, unlike uh, an unexpected scenario like an, an accident, you know, a trauma, an injury, if you have an elective thing, let's say somebody has undergone cancer treatment, disfigured them, or other other things that occur, and they choose to go through surgery and they're planning for it, what an interesting time to say, okay, I know I'm going through a body trauma, I know when it's going to happen, and I, you know, I'm aware of what's going to be done, so I could say, all right, these are the things I need to focus on. What if we can prep the body in a, such a way that the assault or insult to the body is lessened and the healing is accelerated? You know, oftentimes I'll have uh, people obviously take, it's obvious to me and many people that are now familiar with the basic homeopathy, Arnica Montana, which is, you know, one of the basics that everybody should, even John Wayne knew about it in the old movies that they talked about in the scripts in Hollywood. But things like this with TransD or other things can, can help you recover faster because you know you're about to undergo a trauma. Well, absolutely. In fact, I was going to say that the conditioned athletes that compete either in the professional teams, uh, even even the leisurely athletes that compete in marathons and such, you know, when they're doing certain things to prepare for those races, in fact, not, not only just the running aspect, but the mm-hmm. nutritional aspect, the carb loading aspect, they're doing that essentially because they know that they're going to be going through a sort of a trauma because that level of intense activity is nothing less than traumatizing the body. And so they prepare their bodies to go through this. Any athlete that's competed on any regional or greater level knows that you have to prepare for that event, whatever the competition is. And when you consider going in under the uh, proverbial knife, going under Mm -hmm. surgery, you need to prepare. No different than an athletic event. And unfortunately, people don't think of surgery or some type of uh, medical procedure uh, analogous to an athletic event. But essentially, that's what it is because you're traumatizing the system. Uh, that no matter how beneficial the surgery may be, it's still a trauma to the system. And so anything you can do to prepare the body beforehand to deal with that trauma and then the subsequent aftermath to help regenerate the system to bring it back to the same level it was prior to the surgery, anything that you can do to do enhance either one of those two processes behooves you to do it because it's just going to end up reducing the um, side effects, the the consequences, some of the negative consequences of having undergone uh, a procedure that can sometimes in in certain cases be detrimental we know that in certain cases you know the cost of life is 20 30 percent depending on the type of surgery that a person goes through and obviously if it's elective it's not that that significant but certain procedures if it's done in an acute setting you know it's a it's a pretty significant 
uh, cost of life there. Yeah, well, absolutely. But that, that's the thing about the, the nature of nature and unexpected catastrophes or events. You know, there's there are ways to heal, but it's so – you didn't necessarily prep for it like you did, like you mentioned an athlete prepping for a race. But in this case, we're talking about people that may have to undergo procedures ramping up essential fats in their body, for instance, because we know about the inflammatory cascades that are going to take place, ramping up, you know, maybe the utilization of silver because we know the potential for infection in, in, in cases of surgery or any kind of intervention where you're going to pierce the skin. Oh, and by the way, you'll love this because of your experience in the in the ER with your wife a couple of weeks ago. A new study, I just got word of this, came out. This is out of Hanover Medical School in Germany. They studied or surveyed 85 medical student, students, and then they published the, the results of the American Journal of Infection Control. They were asking these uh, med, medical school students, they were already doctors at this point, getting ready to start interacting with patients. Uh, in five scenarios, they wanted to know which ones and when you're supposed to re- require hand washing before contact with patients and it was a a paltry one in five students correctly identifying what to do in all seven situations brought up and one in three got all five hand washing scenarios correct so even in training these guys are fresh in training they're still not getting it right well it's uh you know as far as i'm concerned when in doubt you should always wash your hands but it's interesting that that the results of that study um you know you bring up the point about the the uh, traumatic aspect versus the mm-hmm. elective aspect and actually preparing the body as as I mentioned before a race or before some type of athletic event when you start looking at things like um, even even things that aren't necessarily that traumatic Robert like mm-hmm. percutaneous transdermal coronary angioplasties the PCTAs where they essentially send in a balloon into the vessel fe- feed it through the femoral artery up into the mm-hmm cardiac region to inflate one of the coronaries that may be blocked down or may be spasming or whatever the case is as far as why the vascular tree has been compromised within Mm -hmm. the coronary. So you send in this balloon and then once it gets to the right region where they think the atheroma is or where they think the atherosclerotic plaque is, um, usually done under floral, so they're taking an x-ray, they can see where the the reduction of uh, blood is coming through and then they'll put the balloon in that at that point and then they inflate it and the balloon expands and essentially compresses the atheroma up against the vessel wall thereby opening up the lumen it's very high tech it smushes the plaque yeah exactly (laughs) smushes the plaque and squeezes it against the edges and then theoretically opening up the lumen and Pucell's law states that you increase the lumen of a a tube by 15%, you double the flow through that area. So you don't need that much of an opening to get a significant improvement. But the point that I'm making is that even a procedure like that, that is not opening up the person and it's relatively benign, even a procedure like that, depending on the literature that you review, has a 5% mortality rate. Wow. So that basically means that out of every 100 people or out of every 20 people, one's going to die. So five out of 100 people will die. That is not so benign when you think no, of it. It's not. The procedure is considered to be benign, but most people aren't told these percentages. And this is published yeah. data. Now, depending on you know what data you review and where the procedure is done, mm-hmm. it can be less, it can be more. But 5% was the national average a number of years back. I think right now it's between 3 and 5%. But most doctors, right. have uh, most cardiologists that do this procedure, they're, they're known as invasive cardiologists, they don't necessarily – give their patients the informed consent that's necessary for them to be sure. aware of this. But this is the statistics, depending on the literature that you review again, mm-hmm. between 3 and 5% mortality rate. So it is not as benign, but it's considered benign from a 
I, opening up the body, you know. Yeah, I guess compared to open heart surgery, where they, you know, still break the the chest, the, the you know, the, the breastbone, open it. I mean, which is brutal with these bypasses. But think about in terms of, uh, you know, what you've seen and known and studied for so many years. The even the intravenous chelation therapy to cl- cleanse the arteries and reduce, you know, the metals and the calcification. Well, what kind of uh, rate of death or mortality do you see in a procedure like that compared to the balloon angioplasty? And since 1962 or 66, I can't remember exactly, somewhere in that re- time frame, till the last time I've been aware of the data, which was sometime in the mid-2000, 2005, 2006 range, yes. uh, I believe there was less than 10 documented deaths from EDT chelation. And the interesting component is you're not really even – Sure, if their deaths were causing anything to do with the chelation process, because these people, most of these people, remember, they're already high-risk patients because they're getting the chelation due to their pre-existing cardiac condition. Right. So how do you determine that it's actually that that's caused the problem? Now, when you look at the facts on EDTA, for instance, EDTA itself is one-third as toxic as one over-the-counter aspirin, 325-milligram over-the-counter aspirin. So the chelator itself, EDTA itself, is very, very benign. In fact, to be a true chelator, you mu- it must be inert. Whatever goes into the body comes out of the body. And just for the lay people out there that may not be aware of this, EDTA, everybody's consumed EDTA. It's in mayonnaise, it's in ketchup, it's, in, it's used in uh, preservatives in many food products. Mm-hmm. It's used in every single doctor's office, wherever they draw blood. It's EDTA that's that little liquid that's in the purple top tubes that they use when they draw for a complete blood cell count, that little clear liquid at the bottom is EDTA, which essentially binds to the calcium when the blood hits it. And by binding to the calcium, it prevents the blood from clotting. So EDTA is widely used all over the world for many different things. And so it's very, very safe. And the doctors that don't understand this and tell their patients, oh, you shouldn't get chelation because it's mm-hmm. going to mm-hmm. you know, cause kidney stones or it's going to cause kidney failure, they simply don't get it. Well, fact, and they, they should be warning their patients away from aspirin rather than EDTA. Exactly. The, yeah. the actual issue with kidneys, if it's done by a doctor that knows what they're doing, it will actually improve kidney function. The problem is that a, a, an effective chelator if it's doing its job, it's going to um, concentrate the metals coming through the kidneys, through the glomerular filtration apparatus in the, in the kidneys. The, basically, the, the vacuoles of kidneys, they're, they're, the blood as it's getting filtered and the, you know, produces a urine, that's the byproduct of the filtration process. So it, as it goes through the glomeruli, the concentration of metals within that fluid that's coming out is increasing because the chelator, as it's perfusing throughout the body, is collecting these metals and it gets concentrated in the kidneys. And in fact, in the kidneys, within the vacuoles of the kidneys, you actually see a higher concentration of metals hmm. within the renal parenchyma on biopsy than compared to other areas of the body. Why? Because that's the natural process of the body. You know, as poor people are urinating, the metals yes. tend to conglomerate there and, and accumulate there. So as you start to chelate, the first thing you're going to see is a little bump up in a person's kidney function. Mm-hmm. If they have a lot of metals, you'll see a little bump up in the kidney function. And within two to three weeks, that kidney function will come back down to normal and then actually drop even lower than it was before as that accumulated uh, muck, if you will, gets Beautiful. filtered through and the body yeah. now starts to have a cleaner filter. So first you have to clean out the filter. The cleaning right. out of the filter 
causes that increase in renal function because there's so much more metal there. So where the body was normally seeing one part of lead per million parts of urine, now when you're using a chelator, the body may be seeing 50 parts of lead per million parts of urine or 100 parts of lead per million parts of urine. So naturally, you're going to have a little bit of an increased burden in the kidneys, but it's not the chelator that's causing it. It's the metal the that's being pulled out by yeah. the chelator that's causing it. And they always bl- yeah, bl- blame the uh, innocent bystander. In fact, the bystander, that's the good Samaritan in this case, the EDATA exactly. to help it out. Listen, we've got to take a break here. Uh, advanced Medicine Monday is very advanced. I hope you're uh, hanging with us here right now. I think you are. This is fascinating every time we get to talk to Dr. Batar on many subjects that uh, just uh, kind of flow from uh, his experience, and I'm grateful for it. Check out all the links at robertscottbell.com. We've got links to Medical Rewind. We've got links to his best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away, as well as drbatar.com itself. And we've got lots more healing to do, 866-939-BELL. Please enter your email address at naturalnewsradio.com. We'll send you these uh, daily updates uh, to keep you plugged in to all the healing that you won't hear about anywhere else in the media. Stand by. We're coming back with Dr. Batar after this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell Show. Back at it with Dr. Rasha Bittar on the Advanced Medicine Monday segments of the Robert Scott Bell Show. And uh, Dr. Bittar, last hour I, I had uh, played some uh, uh, some interviews, some really cool interviews on nutrition, and even we talked salt. And uh, there was uh, one particular interview with a good friend of mine, Phil Wilson, who has uh, far infrared healing, you know, saunas, which we utilize, and I know you as well. And what was surprising me about this, of course, we know about sweating fat-soluble toxins and metals out through the skin via infrared technology. But, you know, I thought reducing the burden of the kidneys, but they also showed, similar to what you said with EDTA, enhanced kidney function. I mean, the kidneys actually work better. Uh, with patients that were utilizing this far infrared to, you know, again, send it out through different means to kind of reduce it, but the kidneys were actually functioning better. Right, that's true because essentially it causes a detoxification type of a response throughout the system and infrared saunas. You know, you're getting probably anywhere from two to five inches penetration through the skin and anything. The kidneys are relatively superficial as in the body and you're going to hit that. In fact, I think in my in my particular clinic, the reason we use infrared saunas, the reason we recommend them, it's not so much for the heavy metal aspect, which obviously does benefit, but it's also yep. more for the persistent organic pollutants because those right. you really can't get rid of any other way. The only The only way to really get rid of those besides... Um, using ozone autohemotherapy, which helps to break down the chemicals so the body can then process them. It basically upregulates phase one, phase two of the of the liver for um, the P450 system. Basically, upregulates it. But infrared sauna is the only non-invasive way of actually getting the persistent organic pollutants out. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that it also helps with metals. There have been some studies that have been done where they did uh, urine collections after patients have been in infrared sauna and, and basically uh, observed an increase in yield of heavy metals that was coming out in the urine. So, yes. And I think they've even done this in sweat. Mm-hmm. They've done some studies in sweat. Well, and I like you mentioned the persistent organic pollutants. We talk also about pesticide residues, people that are poisoned over time, or farm workers, etc. Another viable option in conjunction with other methods to you know bring these things out, and we so desperately need to do that. I mean, so much of the things that we'd like to do can't uh, can't occur efficiently when those pollutants are still in the way. 
Absolutely. And people that are obese and have a much greater load of adipose tissue within their systems, they end up being even more toxic because the mm-hmm. fat being avascular or relatively avascular ends up having um, essentially acts like a sponge and holds those toxins in. So that you mentioned the pesticides, but basically any of the pesticides, the insecticides, you know, anything that's an organophosphate like these uh, fertilizers, um, the benzenes, the toluenes, the hy- fluorinated hydrocarbons, any of these chemicals that get into the system, the reason they're all collectively referred to as persistent organic pollutants is because they tend to persist in the body and the body can't get rid of them. Mm-hmm. So short of ozone autohemotherapy, infrared is the only other effective means of getting these things out. I don't know if anything else that would really help to get these out. Now, we use a, we do use an intravenous um, process. Um, it's MTE5. Uh, it's actually a homeopathic-based intravenous therapy that we've developed. And uh, we use one for heavy metals, which is MTE8, and then we use the one for the persistent organic pollutants, MTE5, and we basically prep the body with this IV, which is a homeopathic intravenous uh, solution that we give them, and then we give them the either ozone or hemotherapy if we're going to be dealing with the ozone aspect or the chelator, DMPS, EDTA, whichever one it is, if you're going to be dealing with a heavy metal aspect. Hmm. Fascinating. I love the fact that the energy medicine is being utilized in this way. And we talk about the the, the binding out uh, from a metabolic perspective, utilizing these energy signatures to kind of direct action. So it's we a beautiful that. connection. We that with myasms, too. I don't know whether you knew that. We, mm-hmm. we actually have a IV for myasms we give. Wow, fantastic. Well, I tell you, your, your, your patients are getting some extraordinary care. Not that I'm surprised by that. We know that. But every time I hear a new level or layer of it, I love, I love what, uh, what's going on. Yeah, we've actually been doing the MTEs for probably almost, I'd say we're probably in our fifth or sixth year now. So we've been dealing with the miasms on a on a intravenous basis for some time. And basically the, the nice thing is most people don't need more than three or four. I basically give five and, and then mm-hmm. we're pretty much done with the miasm aspect. And it's for the two most common ones, the, um, uh, gonor- the, the gonorrhea miasm and the uh, – Syphilis myasm. Mm-hmm. Syphilinum. Yeah, this is, is good. And, you know, you mentioned the obesity thing with uh, the, the fat cells um, retaining, if you will, like sponges, if you will. It's, it's almost diluting the toxic burden of the body. I taught certain body types tend toward being overweight, and it's a defensive mechanism to some degree. And, of course, if you try to starve somebody on caloric restriction, you tend to, you know, endanger their, their health, their life, their liver, because you're going to burden when you're forcing these things to be dumped out without maybe having the, the, the foresight to, to prepare these people uh, for detox pathway uh, acceleration opening up. We talked selenium, NAC, other things to get glutathione going, all the things that we know to do. And so we mentioned this, and I see here an article that Don sent me, obese people use more meds according to this study and this is uh through the cdc and you know we're not big fans of the cdc but on toxicology they have some interesting things that often doesn't make the light of day but given the health risks of obesity they say these uh results aren't terribly surprising they put a number uh to the trend they suspect was taking place uh, researchers uh, led by brian kidd at cdc's national center for health statistics analyzed prescription medication use among uh, adults in a nationally representative sample of 10,000 americans and, and basically, they're saying that people that are overweight, obese, are typically on a great number of medicines more than uh, those that are not. Actually, that's not surprising at all, Robert. Because their metabolism is lesser than a normal, normally active individual, and because their entire metabolic process is essentially slowed down because 
their systems are just no longer geared to to work on the same level mm-hmm. as other people's because of the level of toxicity, which is what most people don't understand. Most obese people actually don't eat more. Yeah. It's just that they're in, in the in some of the cases they may eat more, but not in most of the cases. I'd say more than fifty percent of people that are obese don't actually eat more. Their systems are just slower. They're sure. sluggish. They're almost like being held back. Think of it like a horse with its reins being held back. The metabolism is being held back, mm. not because of the individual. No matter how much they try to be active, it's their thyroid, their mm-hmm. adrenal glands. Mm-hmm. Everything has essentially a wrench thrown into it, which prevents it from cranking up. And that toxin buildup that's preventing the kidneys, I mean, sorry, the adrenal glands and the um, thyroid and all these yeah. other endocrine systems from functioning correctly feeds upon itself so it's actually yeah. a it's a it's a bad cascade it everything sure. continuously I, like i know you don't have the article in front of you but you're actually nailing what they're finding there and, and that thyroid oh. is mentioned uh big time you know the endocrine disruption the slowing metabolism um, these people are often on, obviously, cholesterol uh, drugs. Uh, um, we talk about blood pressure medicines. I mean, all of these things we know how to manage naturally and you know, have those medicines are only last resort. Although on cholesterol, I just have, find a hard time for finding anybody that legitimately needs them because of the way you can correct these things without resorting to statins. But Well, uh, actually, you you need the cholesterol itself. It's, it's yes. actually a protective compensatory mechanism for the body, so you don't want to oh, exactly. it. Exactly. It's very, very much so, of course. But that's the number one thing these these uh, so-called obese people are put on and it's you yeah. know one of the most disastrous things they can do look in the fat they're, they're toxic it's it, you know the fat it's toxic fat and it's just like i say when when people eat and they're worried about fat i said no no, no we need more fat we become so fat phobic we got to worry about the quality of the fat are there toxins in the fat there's another article that i just saw recently about uh, the FDA being, you know, lambasted because they're, they're, they're in action concerning the use of antibiotics in animal agriculture. So you eat the animals with antibiotic residues in them. Not only do you increase the level of resistance in humans now, but you're literally creating toxic fat, more of the problems of obesity. I mean, why do they give antibiotics to these animals? In a lot of cases, it's specifically to fatten them up for slaughter. Do you think that eating food that has been treated that way is going to fatten the people up? For slaughter, I don't know for slaughter, but for something. And it's but, funny because it's representative slaughter who's criticizing the FDA in this case. Yeah, that's pretty funny, representative slaughter. I mean, I want to name. <laughs> but actually, Robert, just let's clarify this. The yeah. reason these animals are given uh, prophylactic antibiotics is because they're put into very close, cramped quarters to reduce their activity so that the muscles don't become lean and strong but become, you know, uh, soft and more palatable because the meat is not as tough. It's mm. softer meat. So they pack them in these close quarters. The animals can't move around. It's designed to limit their muscle development. Not the, the You want the muscle to get big, but you don't want the muscle to be tough. You want it to be soft meat so mm. it just melts in your mouth. And so you clo- clo- put them into these close cramped quarters. But now the disease uh, the, the propensity for disease actually increases. So they put them on the prophylactic sure. antibiotics to prevent them from getting diseases. And that's really how they get the antibiotics. That's the reason mm-hmm. that they're using them. It's not necessarily to fatten them up. It's to keep them from getting tough, lean meat and sure. cramp well, them I, in together. And whether it's a result of it or not, again, the other aspect of the humans consuming this type of, of animal product uh, is is horrific because it, it scales up the already you know disastrous situation of the resistant uh, microbes uh, 
even in people that aren't taking antibiotics uh, in their own lives that they know of, they're literally ingesting these residues and creating the, the new life blood, so to speak, for these uh, microbes to proliferate throughout the human population. Absolutely. The, the sequela that you just you know, mentioned, that's whatever the reason they put them in the antibiotics, the damage to the humans is without a doubt something that over time accumulates and is disastrous. Mm. And and again, we come back to they don't know how to wash their hands. They can't figure out that they're creating antibiotic resistant strains, although they acknowledge it is in the peer reviewed literature. They pat themselves on the back when they, you know, basically wash their hands properly once or twice or reduce by a degree or percentage point the use of antibiotics, even though they're still prescribing it in viral uh, issues, whether it's patient demanded or not. I think the docs have to put their foot down here. Uh, you know, so we, we got a disastrous situation where, you know, the good doctors could rise to the top if they were allowed to. But in many cases, they're criticized for criticizing the doctors that are not getting it. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. By the way, not to get mm-hmm. off subject, but mm-hmm. since we're talking about hand washing. Yeah. Um, I don't know what your opinion is, but the hand sanitizer. The antibacterial sanitizers. Oh, man, I am so annoyed I'm with those things. Extremely against those. Yeah, uh, yeah. You the same way? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we're creating other problems because many of the sanitizers use benzyl alcohol and other, you know, antibiotic family of things can create more resistance as well. But also think about the skin, the epithelial layers. If you dry it out with benzyl alcohol, you're going to end up with cracked little, you know, micropore abrasions that are going to make you more susceptible for, you know, bacterial infestation by wiping out the natural layers of immunity exactly and in fact the reason to wash your hands with just soap and water mm-hmm. is to get rid of anything like a residue um, saliva anything that could have a carrier that mm-hmm. would be that would, the bacteria or the virus could carry on you're not really trying to get rid of the bacteria or the virus you're trying to get rid of the medium that it may be on. In other words, yes. the spit of an individual when they sneezed or whatever the case may be. Most diseases like colds, flu, uh, sinus infections, pneumonia, the vast majority of them, in fact, there's only three that are not transmitted by direct contact. Ebola is one of them. Typhoid is one of them. Mm-hmm. Tuberculosis, I think tuberculosis, Ebola, and then there's a third one. I I don't know if typhoid is the third one or not, but Mm -hmm. regardless, there's only three things that are actually transmitted through the air. People think that everything else is transmitted through the air. It is not. Now, if somebody sneezes and you get sick, oh, but that was transmitted through the air. No, actually, it was the particles of saliva, the particles from your nose and your mouth as you sneeze them that then touch the other person's face or the hand or whatever, and then they picked up something, put it in their mouth, or they picked, mm-hmm. touched and something that the saliva got on, and then they put it in their mouth. That's how it's really transmitted. Absolutely. So the reason that you wash your hands is to get rid of those residues off. However, if you use an antibacterial or the, I'm sorry, what is it called, the hand sanitizers, yes. you're, you're actually getting rid of bacteria that's protective. Your defense. Your defense. You're wiping out your defense. Exactly. Doesn't it sound like what the politicians do? They exhaust their defenses, our defenses, and say, well, uh, Ron Paul is, is soft on defense because he doesn't want to be at war all the time. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty ludicrous. I mean, well, don't get me started on that. No, break. no, no. Hey, let, let, let's take a break here before we lose track. Actually, we might talk a little, Ron Paul. We always do. It's fun because it's nice to see some awakening going on out there. But, yes, I'm glad you mentioned this issue. Go back just to soap and water. Stop with the hand sanitizers because you're wiping out your own immune defense. We're talking about getting rid of the carrier agents, as Dr. Batar just mentioned. That's what we do here on Advanced Medicine Monday. Get past the garbage and get you to the heart of how you can heal. 
And this is a message for all the good docs out there, too. We appreciate you. We'll be right back with more powerful healing after this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell Show. Taking on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. We mentioned uh, the issue of obesity and the obese people being on drugs. I just see a study here coming across the plate, uh, no pun intended for those that are eating a lot, but this isn't even about (laughs) about eating a lot. Uh, This is out of a a study, I think it's out of Israel, out of Tel Aviv, and I've been there. I studied at the Hebrew University, actually, in Jerusalem a little bit. I did microbiology there years ago. I mean, there's a lot of brilliant innovations coming out of Israel, I have to say. There's some interesting things that do happen there, but uh, in this case, I'm thinking, moment of duh, this is a moment of duh. There's no way. Just chill. Relaxing can make you fatter. Conventional wisdom says that exercise is a key to weight loss, a no-brainer. But now, Tel Aviv University researchers are revealing that life as a couch potato, stretched out in front of the TV, can actually be active in activity and cause you to pack on the pounds. Come on, did they really need to do this study? Wait a second, wait a second. <laughs> they, just, they just acknowledge that exercise is good. Yes, yes. And there's that, now they're trying to prove that in ex- in lack of exercise is bad? Yeah, that you couch potato, you pack on the pound. I'm thinking... Who funded this? I hope this is not U.S. taxpayer money. I know a lot of money goes in foreign aid to uh, Israel and non-Israel, but I mean, this is the kind of stuff that goes, come on. This is, you know, you need an excuse to do scientific research. Pick something that'll mean something and matter. Unbelievable. They published this in the American Journal of Physiology, Cell Physiology demonstrating the damaging effect of modern sedentary lifestyle. I'm telling you, if we needed to wait for the study to figure this out, we're all we're all a bunch of dummies. Yeah, we, we, we deserve whatever we're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, exactly. No wonder why Americans and, and people in the West don't see the brilliance of Ron Paul. They're all so dumb they can't figure out that being a couch potato is not good. <laughs> <laughs> they needed a study to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's do another study here. I tell you, I was uh, you know up at this natural products uh, show this weekend, uh, Doctor Patar, and I you know there's there's a, a schism. On one hand, a lot of the, the health food store people really understood and really valued Ron Paul's message of freedom and having the freedom to to speak about truthful. I mean, we're not talking about doing fraud. We're talking about truthfully referencing science and saying about supplements and what they can do to prevent and treat and cure and mitigate disease. But the FDA always squashes you, even if you have scientific peer-reviewed literature to back you up, like on the issue of selenium and, and cancer. Uh, we, we, this, is, this lawsuit's against FDA seven times now, Jonathan Eboard's beat them back, but they still have to put the disclaimer, well, FDA doesn't agree with the science, right? And why do we need a federal government arbitrating what a doctor or anybody with a, a lick of sense can read and go, hmm, I think selenium would be a good thing? Yeah, well, you know, this is, comes... This uh, this argument that you're making though could be applied to every every aspect of the government. What the hell do we need them for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did I just did I just say that out loud? You did, but I mean it's a good question. Uh, if we would say, if we would dare say, uh, well, okay, could we limit them to the Constitution and agree? Hey, that was a pretty good idea. But everything they do is beyond the restrictions, the limitations, the enumerated powers that they've been given. And then they go after Ron Paul and say, oh, he's, he's, he's a little out of touch or, or maybe too radical for promoting freedom in this way. I hear this a lot. He's too radical. I was like, was the American Revolution too radical for you? Yeah, what is radical about the, the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights? That's what I don't understand. I mean, if, this, if, if everybody takes the premise that this is what our country was based upon, then how can anybody who adheres to that standard be considered radical. In fact, anybody who is not adhering to that standard should be mm-hmm. designated as being a radical. 
Yeah, recently Senate Bill 1867 was uh, passed in the Senate, and there's a version of it in the House. Now they've got to reconcile the two, but they were actually going to do a voice vote on uh, a little clause or so uh, called in there that would allow for indefinite detention, arrest, uh, sending Americans to Guantanamo simply by claiming that they're sympathetic to terrorists or terrorists somehow. And even if they had been uh, rendered not guilty if he, through a natural court of law with peer review, peer, I say peer reviewed, uh, but a jury, a jury of peers, that they could still be held even beyond that. And uh, John McCain and a guy named Levin on the Democratic side, they were all for this. And then Rand Paul, thank God, God bless him. And uh, Paul's you know family is doing a lot to, to restore liberty or defend us uh, somehow. He said, no, 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 you're not doing a voice vote on this. I demand that we do a recorded vote. And then the two guys that were most for it voted against it because when they had to go on the record, they, they couldn't stand the courage of their convictions. They're cowards. Wow. Wow. So they were going to vote against what the constituents wanted them to vote, but yep. when it became recorded, they had no choice but to Yeah, vote. they wanted a voice vote so there would be no record of who voted for it or against it. And once uh, Rand Paul stood the line and said, no, you're not getting away with this. You, we are doing a, re- a recorded vote. We want everybody on the record here. Then they backed off. But still, there's language in there that's really it's – it's a defense authorization bill. And I still, you know, I, I talked to a cab driver up there in Orlando when I was there this past weekend. He's like, oh, Ron Paul, he's just, I don't like his stance on defense. What, that he wants to acknowledge the Constitution? I think people are still so toxic. We've got a, we've got a lot of work to do, Dr. Batar. Yeah, I think the problem is that the it's the popular media that they're listening to. You're right. That, that basically taints everybody's image because they they basically regurgitate. The vast majority of people just regurgitate what they hear the media say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I had a nice discussion with the cab driver in this case. I mean, he was a nice man. He's like not happy with Obama, as most people are not. Uh, but, he, you know, he just he just I just called him. I said, you know, what's wrong with the Constitution? What's wrong with going to Congress and saying, hey, we, we got to declare war, get it done with, do it, get it over with and bring the troops back home. And he's like, well, I agree with that. I agree with that. Well, that's all Ron Paul's saying. But then they go come back to the, what the media is telling him to think. And another thing he says is that when the you know when the feds do something that's a violation of the Constitution, you can't wait for the Supreme Court to tell them tell them oh admit well it's wrong you know we're going to rule against our our power and such and you know that's a concept of uh, James Madison and and of course Thomas Jefferson founders and framers if you will and uh, Ron Paul was asked a question about this thing called nullification at the last one event. issue that I think that we have to revisit because the founders understood it but we have forgotten about it and that is the principle of nullification if the federal government won't respond and I would if I can I would respond in in the favorable way of reinstituting the principle of nullification. The states have to be able to nullify this. This would reverse the trend, and this would stop the usurpation of all the powers and privileges from the states to the federal government. One issue that... that, that's, That's what we're talking about here is like, a rightful remedy, just like as a doctor, Batar would say, what is the rightful remedy to help my patient? He's looking at the rightful remedy. I mean, it's common sense, is it not? Well, I, I can't see how anybody of a reasonable intellect could argue with this. I honestly can't. I mean, the only – you would have to say that anybody who argues against what Ron Paul is saying, would their, their reasons for arguing against it would be highly suspect. 
Well, as you said, they're being programmed because, I mean, even if you, you, you know, go to a doctor, I mean, do, do you have the right and obligation? I've, I've studied some things here. I think I'm going to nullify that, doc. That just doesn't seem right. I'm going to go to somebody else or, you know, that kind of thing. It's an adult thing to, to consider and say, okay, or no, I nullify that. I'm moving on. And I think that's what we're, we're learning we're going to have to do more of in, in terms of the government because they're not policing themselves and the people have forgotten that they're the last line of defense it isn't the piece of paper that the constitution was written on by the way hemp paper it's the people's willingness to say no enough i like that hemp paper i'm glad you brought that up <laughs> yeah i know we ban we banned the very thing our constitution and declaration of independence were written upon i mean that alone it's that should be treason yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I totally much, agree with you. Yeah, much like the Senate Bill 1867, where they say, yes, we can uh, arrest uh, citizens, no Fourth Amendment protections, we can hold them indefinitely without charge. I mean, if you vote for that, wouldn't that be considered treason? I mean, you, you, or, you know, some level of, of, I don't know what it would be, but it's just, this is, I, they, they swear an oath to uphold, defend the Constitution, they just trash it. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that, I think I told you this, Robert, some time ago, I got a email from... I don't even know who it was that sent it, but it said, attention, all prior law enforcement, military, et cetera, et cetera. And it said, yeah. remember the oath that you took to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And domestic was highlighted and, and underlined. And I think this you know, brings up that same point now that those that are taking the oath in the, in the politics, in the political offices, uh, vowing to uphold the Constitution and supporting the Constitution and then – Saying, coming back with saying, well, Ron Paul is too – what's the word that you used? He's too uh, radical? Radical, yeah, radical yeah. For upholding the very constitution the, that every one of them took an oath to uphold. Right. I think what's radical is that he may be the one that, that doesn't know – they don't, and that's why they're upset. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and you know, but this is like the doctors that get upset with you or homeopaths that get upset with me if we speak – you know, truthfully and factually about our experience about, you know, the, 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 the shortcomings of the profession or the people that are not living up to their oaths. Um, I can understand, I guess, why they're upset, but I would rather th- them say, well, you know, I could do better. Let's see what we can do instead of just lashing out. Yeah, I think that's uh, human nature, though. You know, if you can't, how, how does that saying go? Um, you can't beat them, join them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, something like that. Exactly. Because, they basically don't have um, they don't have the aptitude or the ability to to further the science or the technology or whatever the case may be within their own field. And so, if they can't, they don't have the ability, the intellect to compete at the same level and to further it. Then their next best thing is to downgrade and denigrate anybody and anything that's mm-hmm. trying to promote that science or that technology from becoming better and more efficient. Yeah. Well, yeah, I see that in all endeavors, all uh, fields of, uh, of uh, you know, whether it be medicine or other things that we talk about here, because healing, as we know, is not just about physiology, it's emotions, it's mind, it's spirit, it's, you know, it's even the things that we do in life and in economics and politics, all of it comes into play and it need, needs to be addressed because all of these things affect the human body, and, you know, especially the emotions, but we don't limit it here. That's why this is Advanced Medicine Monday, the Medical Rewind with Dr. Bittar here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. We're going to be right back after this brief break with a final, final segment of the week, and that kicks off the week in high style with Dr. Bittar. We love it. Stand by. Coming right back after this.
work in the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Dr. Bittar, it's hard to do a Medical Rewind Advanced Medicine Monday segment with you without at least once talking about the issue of vaccines because it's so prolific and pervasive and dangerous and damaging. And we did have a call a little while back. I don't think I played this for for you prior to this, but I think it would be good to kind of hear uh, this perspective real quick. Uh, vaccinating somebody, you, you keep saying it's medical assault. Can people bring lawsuits against the doctor, the clinic, the hospital, the, um, you know, for medical assault? I well, what do you what do you think about that question? That's an interesting one about the concept of of this being medical assault. I know that the Vaccine Injury Compensation Act limits the liability of the makers, but what about the, what doctors? What are they responsible for? Technically speaking, if a doctor has not obtained consent from the patient before treating the patient or before doing anything to the patient, uh, technically they could be held liable for assault. That's true. Um, interestingly enough, uh, probably a year ago, maybe nine months ago, our mutual friend, Sherry Tenpenny, mm-hmm. sent me an email that she had about a posting on one of her sites. And it was about a woman in North Carolina, right here in Charlotte, in fact, uh-huh. who had taken her children to the pediatrician for a routine exam, but had specifically stated that she did not want a vaccine. She had specifically stated she did not want a vaccine. Okay. And what happened was that the children were given a vaccine, not just one, but I think there was two or three children involved. They all got the vaccines. And she filed a case, I guess, uh, with the, or a complaint with the North Carolina Medical Board uh-huh. against the doctor and the hospital. And the North Carolina Medical Board, get this, came back and said that there was nothing uh, to pursue because the doctor simply gave the vaccine as per the routine vaccination schedule and did not take any action against the doctor or the hospital, although they don't have any jurisdiction over the hospital, but no recourse was against the doctor. Now, I found that very interesting, and yet when there's no complaint from a patient for doing some type of a procedure or some type of treatment, but the medical board will take it upon themselves to come after, even though normal consent, adequate consent, multiple consent forms are signed, Right. but they'll take action. So they're really becoming... They're actually exercising the privilege of practicing medicine, even though the medical board does not have a license themselves to practice medicine, but they're dictating the practice of medicine. Wow. So coming back to this aspect of the assault, it would be an interesting argument. I think it would have to come down to how good the attorney was, mm-hmm. and um, and then the case would have to be made. But it is something that's not necessarily new. Other people have thought about this, but I just don't know how – well, the argument will go over because the prevailing thought process is a vaccine is supposed to be right. beneficial. So how are you going to hold right. somebody accountable for doing something supposedly, quote, beneficial? The deadly medical consensus. I mean, that's yeah. that's you know where we come to have to dismantle the argument that it is you know a legitimate form of preventive medicine, so to speak. Kind of yeah. like what I did earlier in the week, last week with World AIDS Day and dismantled the entire HIV test. And this is this is happening in courts of law where people are accused of crimes for having sexual relations with people and not revealing their HIV positivity. And they're throwing these cases out when the uh, Office of Medical and Scientific Justice, uh, OMSJ, 
and Clark Baker, a former police officer in L.A. and, and a Marine Corps veteran, uh, comes in with that information, and it just blows away the the uh, prosecutor because they have no no defense witness can attest to the validity of an HIV test. Yeah. And, and not that these guys and gals that do this are, are not good pe- people or bad people. I mean, that's irrelevant. It's just a matter of you, you take the science out of their, their hands because it, it's consensus. But when they're confronted with the scientific facts and the literature, then they have no defense. I wonder if one day that will happen in a, in a state court because the feds are all bought out. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And the feds, uh, although the feds are bought out, the uh, states are all bought out, the Federation of State and Medical Boards, which is a private organization, but – has somehow garnered the ability to dictate who uh, is going to be licensed, who's not going to be licensed, and they basically set up the stipulations of what const- uh, what is construed as appropriate medical education. They, the Federation of State Medical Board actually dictates to the state medical boards what should be prosecuted, what should be persecuted, what should uh, be the the status quo, and any doctor that's using any type of natural therapy uh, should be. In fact, this Tammy Bourne, one of my good friends. I don't know if you know Tammy, but she used to be on the Michigan State Medical Board. Uh, she's a physician out of Michigan, and uh, Tammy actually was a representative to the Federation of State Medical Boards for the Michigan's uh, Medi- Michigan's Medical Board. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that she witnessed at the federation level was the people that were running for office in the federation state medical board said you know elect me and i will make sure that things such as uh chelation will be stamped out at gunpoint if necessary wow they're dictating whatever is considered to to be the the standard that the medical Mm -hmm. board investigators look for so if somebody's giving vitamin c intravenously that is something the medical board investigators are trained to look for and that is considered to be quote, bad medicine, and that right. doctor needs to be secluded and, and, and persecuted at yeah. gunpoint if necessary. You know, speaking of that, uh, probably we're almost out of time here, Dr. Bedard, but next week maybe we'll have to follow up on this. Tim Boland has just released more information on the Virginia Board of Medicine or Medical Board there, and they are being dismantled, you know, as we speak, by the legislature there because of their attacks on Mark and David Geyer, the father-son team, uh, that has revealed the dangers of the thimerosal in the vaccines and revealed it to the global audience. In fact, in these treaties now, they're looking to ban thimerosal in all, for all medical uses and applications. So they attack them viciously. And it looks like uh, the Virginia legislature is getting wind of this and is going after that board. So we'll have some updates next week. You and I can talk about that. It's very exciting. I didn't really realize that Mark and David Guy are both friends of mine. And Obviously, Tim Bowen is too, also a friend of mine, but that's information that I was not aware of. So I'm just breaking, just breaking as of yesterday. So uh, we'll we'll definitely cover that more next week. I'll highlight it some more with you, and I know we'll have some good stuff as we always do here on Advanced Medicine Monday on the Robert Scott Bell Show. Doctor Batar, always a great privilege, pleasure, and honor to be with you. Same here, Robert. I look forward to next week. All right. Well, in the meantime, just remember this until tomorrow's show that the power to heal is yours. Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell Show.